Yes, hello, and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is episode number 36. Glad to have you with us, or glad to have you with me. Once again, just me. Uh, The opinions expressed here are just those of me. (laughs) I have to find a better syntactic way of dealing with that concept. Um, they're, They're my opinions and mine alone. I, Joe, of strange sound, no one associated with me, um, is represented in the views expressed on strange sound, only myself. So, uh, once again, glad to have you with me. I am recording this on Saturday, um, the, uh, 7th of November. Um, this is a couple hours after, uh, NBC and other major networks, uh, declared Joe Biden winner of the, uh, 2020 presidential race, um, celebrations now underway, people cheering, bells ringing in the streets of Paris, all kinds of expressions of joy, great joy. So, you know, I want to take a moment here um, to acknowledge the fact that there's a great sort of, I'm going to say, um, transcendental sense of relief (laughs) at the notion that the Trump presidency, at least term one of the Trump presidency is coming to an end and that the Trump presidency of uh, Trump 45 anyway, and I'm obviously leaving the door open to his being able to run for president again in four years, uh, (laughs) which I wouldn't put past him, um, that the Trump presidency, uh, Trump 45 is coming to an end. Uh, it will indeed come to an end on January 20th of 2021. That will be the end of that. Um, and this is a interesting moment. It's been an interesting week. I don't think anybody uh, who hears the sound of my voice um, needs me to tell you this because you've lived through it yourself. It's been... It's been a week of uh, some amount of nail-biting and uh, just anxiety over the question of whether or not we were actually going to rid ourselves of this um, fractious and angry king, <laughs> wannabe king, little Lord Fuckleroy. Um And it appears uh, we have actually managed to push him out of the window. Uh, so that's that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Now, he's not taking it very well. I don't think that's any surprise. There's going to be no gracious exit for this fellow, Trump. He's going to kick and scream. He's going to whine. He's going to say it's unfair. He'll say, you cheated. You cheated. Wah. It's going to sound something like this. Wah. 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 Um, and that's that's a shame. You know, that's just a shame. I mean, as someone who has um, 
spent most of my adult life lamenting lost elections and, you know, failed political um, efforts. I mean, mind you, I think I've, for anyone who's been listening to this uh, podcast at all, I think I may have mentioned in previous episodes that uh, my first political campaign was George McGovern's back when I was like 12 or 13. I worked on the George McGovern campaign <laughs> and stuffed envelopes and made phone calls and manned the um, information booth at the New Hartford Shopping Center and uh, talking about putting yourself in traffic, my friends. For those of you who don't know, the New Hartford Shopping Center is uh, located in New Hartford, New York, which is a rock rib Republican town. <laughs> and there I was, uh, 12 or 13, manning the, uh, what was essentially like uh, Lucy's, Lucy of um, Peanuts, her uh, psychiatric help five cents booth. You know, it's like a lemonade stand, <laughs> except with <laughs> with propaganda about George McGovern and a bunch of buttons and all kinds of things that I could hand out to people. Um, and there were some takers. Um, I actually had a little speaker and a microphone so that I could read out of the McGovern Encyclopedia, which was an actual piece. <laughs> it was a tabloid newsprint size um, brochure, you know, that went on for pages and pages as to his policy recommendations at the time. And I used to read out of it. Um to the passers-by, the passing shoppers. <laughs> so again, as someone who for a long time has paid attention to elections, I'm not going to say that I've been an activist all my life. I haven't, but um, I've always been interested in politics and I've always paid attention to it and I've always recognized you know, the importance of elections, even if I don't consider them the most important thing about political activism. I do consider them important. They're uh, necessary but not sufficient. But... Um, as someone who has um, sort of signed on to and supported many lost efforts, um, I I kind of you know understand the disappointment of not having your person go over the person of your choice go over the finish line ahead of the uh, ahead of the competition, losing it in the last inning, you know that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I totally get that. I know it's disappointing. So you Trump supporters out there, I know none of you are listening to this podcast because there's only a handful of people listening to this podcast, and I'm guessing that none of them are Trump supporters. But I will say this. I feel you. I know how that feels. Totally. Um, I've spent most of my political life in disappointment and just gathering myself up afterwards and starting over. And I'm sure you will have absolutely no problem with that. For one thing, Donald Trump is not going anywhere. He may be leaving the White House. In fact, he definitely is leaving the White House and we will help him. But um, as far as being in the public eye, he's not going anywhere. He's going to be all over the place. He'll be running his rallies. He'll be talking to massive crowds. He'll be launching a network. He'll be, you can, you just name it. You just name it. He won't have the presidency to stand on anymore, but he'll have, you know, he'll have a platform. He'll have a big platform. And people will follow him. After all, he uh, has gotten the second highest total number of votes um, for a presidential candidate. And then obviously that's the 
that would be the office for which you would get the most votes in the United States. Um, so he's the second highest vote getter in the history of the United States. Uh, uh, the only one who's gotten more votes is Joe Biden. And, uh, I'd like to say that that's why he's president, but that's not why he's president. He's president because he won the most votes in the right number of states to give him the electoral victory of, well, right now it's officially, well, I mean, as far as projections are concerned, it's officially 279 electoral votes, which is nine above the uh, requisite amount to be considered president-elect. And there you go. So... Yeah, Trump's not going anywhere, so you folks won't won't be disappointed for very long. I have to say, the times that I've been disappointed, uh, people went away rather quickly. <laughs> the also-ran kind of disappeared almost immediately. So there was very little help in getting over it. Uh, Trump supporters are going to have all the help they need. There's going to be plenty of consolation, my friends. And, of course, aggrievement. Yards and yards of delicious aggrievement that you can consume month after month, year after year. And it will give you strength. Trust me. Trust me. That's something to look forward to. Anyway, uh, I don't want to spoil... <laughs> I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. No, I'd, I, I can understand that... It's hard for me to guess the political opinions of anyone listening to this because I don't really have any data on anyone who may be listening to this. Um, it's really just a handful of people. So uh, I'm going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the folks that are listening to this are probably not terribly sorry that Trump will not be president after January 20th of 2021. And, uh, you know, so that's that's my guess. Um I don't want to, you know, rain on anybody's parade. This is a day for celebration uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I'm not the type that tends to celebrate political victories of this type too vehemently. I mean, I will say I'm relieved. I sort of saw it coming over the last couple of days, but I, I will say that I'm relieved, but it's not like a celebratory atmosphere for me. I'm not jumping up and down. I'm not dancing in circles. I'm not drinking. I just don't do that because it never stops, right? Um, politics doesn't end with elections, and it doesn't begin with elections. It's it's a process. It's a continual struggle. So, I mean, I think a lot of people on the left are, you know, right now they're just thinking of what the next thing is going to be, you know. They know what that next thing is, but they're they're thinking of what struggle lies ahead. And there's a lot of struggle that lies ahead, my friends. Because this election, as I mentioned in my blog this week, go to big-green.net to see that. Check out the blog, uh, my political rants. My most recent one termed it a clusterfuck because it was. <laughs> In essence, really, the only thing that we can point to as a unqualified victory is the Biden campaign. The fact that our voters dragged Biden over the finish line and uh, and in in a relatively convincing way, 
Um, not, not a narrow victory in terms of the popular vote, and it, it'll. I think it'll end up being a convincing enough victory in in the electoral vote. You know, not that that's. I mean, that strikes me as like this constitutional parlor game that was set up back towards the end of the constitutional con- Congress um, in kind of a haphazard fashion. <laughs> so it's. To me, it's it's kind of, I mean, I realize that's how we select our president, so we're kind of stuck with that. Um, I don't see it as any kind of measure of legitimacy. If someone got 270 electoral votes, that would be plenty from my standpoint, particularly if that person wins anywhere from 4 to 10 million more votes than his or her opponent. That's what confers legitimacy in my eyes. Um, the electoral college is just a necessary, um, it, it's a necessary parlor game that was set up by these, you know, 18th century aristocrats, uh, as a way of sort of preserving power, um, and reserving power to certain sectors of the society at the time. And, uh, yeah, so we, we have to do that because we're constitutionally bound to that. And I don't like it, and I think a lot of people don't like it, but that's the way it is, and until we change it, it's going to be that way. Um, so legitimately, um, Joe Biden is now president-elect. Um, he has won the constitutional parlor game known as the Electoral College, and uh, he has also been uh, conferred uh, a large majority of votes. Um in excess of 4 million. And mind you, there's a lot of votes to be counted yet. Um, the last I looked in California, they've only counted about 60 to 70% of the ballots. Um, and he's, his margin in California is something like two to one. So it's, you know, millions of votes already. He's probably going to, Biden is probably going to earn millions more votes by the time the counting is finished. Um, hundreds of thousands in New York, New Jersey, um, even, you know, even red states, there'll be, there'll be more votes. Um, so it's, look, (laughs) there's a lot of votes yet to be counted in other words. So, uh, that popular vote question is still, is still an open one. And he's, uh, Biden is already far ahead of where Hillary Clinton was at this point, um, in the counting of the votes, uh, she really didn't reach her 3 million, I'll say plurality, because she didn't actually reach 50%. It was more like 48%. Um, Biden earned a majority of votes and just over 50%, I think 50.5. And it's going to be, you know, right now it's 4 million. He's 4 million ahead in the popular vote. Uh, there's a potential for him to be as as much as seven, eight, maybe even ten million ahead by the time all the votes are counted. So that's that to me confers a level of legitimacy. Um, there are people who talk about mandates. You know, well, this isn't this isn't like a sufficient win to have a mandate. Of course it is. <laughs> of course there's a mandate. Uh, he won a majority of votes. He won the election. When did Republicans ever let that get in their way, right? Did George W. Bush act like he didn't have a mandate? 
in 2000? Did Richard Nixon act like he didn't have a mandate in 1968 when he won like 44% of the vote? I mean, seriously. So, uh, yes, uh, Joe Biden should act like he has a mandate because he does. He won the election. Now, he won the election because of the work and the votes of people of color. And I wanted to make this point because a lot of the talking heads on television uh, were talking about the fact that Donald Trump pulled a slightly larger percentage of Latinx and black voters um, in 2020 um, over his margins in 2016. Now, that's not to say that he got anything like a majority. Of course not. He, he just got an uptick of the percentage. I don't have the numbers right now, but my understanding is that it's maybe a couple points here and there. Um, obviously, Trump won um, more votes. He didn't win Miami-Dade County in Florida, but he won a higher percentage of votes in Miami-Dade, and that allowed him to win Florida. He outperformed um, his 2016 numbers in Miami-Dade. They've attributed that to um, the Cuban community, the Venezuelan community, and um, the kind of anti-communist crusade that the Trump campaign mounted against against Biden and against the Democrats more generally. And uh, that appears to have, have helped him in Florida. Now, Florida has been uh, Democratic fool's gold for uh, a number of election cycles, so I'm, I'm not going to say that that's the only reason why Trump won Florida. Um, <laughs> it's just not surprising anymore when Florida goes, goes red. It's just, that's the way that state's been going lately. Um, it's hard for a Democrat to win statewide office. Um, they, they make it hard, but that's, it's also, you know, that's partly the Cuban community, um, the, the hardcore of the Cuban community. I think some of the younger, younger folks in that community, um, are, are a little bit more diverse in their political opinions. Um, but there are a lot of, a lot of exiles. Um, there's a kind of an exile culture in Miami-Dade, so. It's not surprising, um, but I, I just wanted to make this point. Um, by way of making this point, I want to point you, and I will include a link to this um, in the show notes. I believe it was the day after or maybe two days after the election on Democracy Now! Juan Gonzalez, who's uh, one of the co-hosts of Democracy Now! and a uh, longtime uh, political activist, uh, journalist, columnist. He's now a professor at Rutgers. Um, he's, he's written, I think he's written a couple of books, but the, the one, uh, most recent, um, updated, um, history of Latinos in America is fascinating. I think it's Harvest of Empire, I think is the title. I I read it, uh, last month. I think I, I, I read it and, uh, it's a it's a fascinating um, sort of overview of the history of of um, the Americas essentially and Spanish speaking Americans um, <laughs> and you know the, the the various cultures and nationalities that that comprise that and the degree to which they've played a role in American history um, and it's it's fascinating but what he 
What he said on Democracy Now! a couple of days after the election was basically, um, yes, there was an uptick in the percentage of the Latin Latinx vote that Trump earned in 2020 over his percentage in, in 2016. This is true. But he said his primary point is that there were so many more Latinx voters um, this time around that it really, <laughs> the main story, the principal story here is <laughs> what kind of turnout they had. I mean, he pointed out that in uh, in 2016, something like 12.6 million Latino voters voted. 12.6 million. Um, that's compared to 9.7 million in 2008, which was which was a pretty high turnout. But 12.6 million in 2016. In 2020, according to the exit poll data. That number jumped up to 22.6. 22.6 million. That's an enormous increase. Uh, so th- there was a tremendous turnout um, among Latinx voters. And they were key to the Biden victory, as were black voters. Now, there was increased turnout amongst black voters they that went up about several million couple million um a smaller increase obviously there was an increase in the white vote too um about 2.7 million the asian vote um increased even more dramatically in a way it it, it i believe it quadrupled from 2016 to 2020, there were 1.1 million votes cast by Asian Americans in 2016. In 2020, there were 4.7 million, which is a pretty dramatic increase as well. And that was a key part of um, Biden's win as well. So (laughs) really the story, the interesting story here is in... in, uh, I invite you to listen to Juan, Juan Gonzalez's um, explanation of this um, because he's taken kind of a deep dive into it. The interesting part of this is that really Trump increased his the, the percentage of, of the white vote that he received um, in 2020 over his over the percentage he received in 2016 so more white people voted for him in 2020 and he did better amongst college edu- educated white women in 2020 now i like think about that for a minute <laughs> college educated white women more of them voted for donald trump this year than voted for him in 2016 um and more more white people voted for him as a proportion of the electorate in 2020 than did in 2016. Uh, So the thing that's curious is that when you turn on the television, you'll watch these uh, talk shows and people are hashing out, you know, who voted for who and who is responsible for what and, you know, who showed up, who didn't show up and, you know, 
almost kind of wagging a finger at people or just kind of scratching their heads over why would these why would these uh latino voters turn out for trump so much better than they did before there was a huge increase in the number of votes and the vast majority of those votes went to joe biden and to uh you know other candidates in the democratic side so it amounted to much much more votes many more votes um and donald trump got more white people a large percentage larger percentage of the white population voted for donald trump in 2020 so why aren't these pundits going around saying what's the matter with white women what's the matter with college educated white women that they voted for donald trump in larger numbers <laughs> right i mean what's like in what universe do you not point that out why wouldn't you be asking that question rather than the question about, you know, oh, well, Latinos, his Latino support went up a couple of ticks in terms of the uh, percentage that supported him? Well, that's, that may be true. But uh, particularly uh, with white voters, I mean, the, the number of white voters that voted for Donald Trump in this election is, is just enormous. So you got to kind of ask yourself, what the hell, right? And when you come right down to it, the smoke is still rising from the uh, battlefields of the 2020 election. So there's nothing definitive, right? But what I think what we can see is based on where Joe Biden got the vote and got his victory um, based on the areas of the country and the states that he won, it's largely a function of black voters and Latinx voters and voters of color more generally that he is president. There's just no two ways about that. I mean, bear in mind, the only communities where there was a, where there was a determined get out the vote, retail politicking sort of COVID cautioned, but face-to-face, you know, voter outreach uh, was in those districts that had progressive representation. Uh, Rashida Tlaib's district in, in and around Detroit, she had an army of people going out and talking to people about voting, getting people to vote. She and her, her organization um, played an important role in the fact that um, Biden ended up carrying Michigan. Uh, that was huge. That was effing huge. Same thing with Ilan Omar in Minnesota, uh, in Minneapolis, in that area. Uh, she had an army of people that went out, <laughs> was talking to people, getting them to vote. They voted the entire ballot. You know, they're getting them to vote the ballot from top to bottom. And they were very successful at that. Same thing in Georgia. You see Georgia, you know, uh, Biden holding to a slim lead, but a lead in a state that, you know, has been coming close in recent elections, but not quite over the top, given all the disadvantages that uh, voters of color have in Georgia, the things that they have to deal with. Um, they were able to register an enormous number of new voters in Georgia and to get them to the polls. They successfully did that. 
groups like the one uh, established by Stacey Abrams and groups to the left of her. A lot of a lot of activist organizations in Georgia on the left were beating the bushes and getting people out to vote, registering them and and getting them to vote for the top of the ticket as well as down ballot. Now, uh, we didn't end up with Democratic senator in either of the races for uh, U.S. Senate in Georgia, but they're both going to a runoff. So my hope is that <laughs> my hope is that this get out the vote registration sort of grassroots activism movement that they have in Georgia will will push people to vote in the runoff elections. I hope so, but you have to give them a lot of credit for getting Biden over the top in in Georgia. Because, frankly, because of the pandemic, um, the Biden campaign didn't really have a ground game. The pandemic allowed them to return to the failed model of 2016, which... Um, if anyone remembers, and I've talked about it on the podcast before, the uh, Clinton campaign in 2016 relied principally on modeling, data modeling, and was very consultant-driven. And they discounted get-out-the-vote traditional retail, door-to-door, get-out-the-vote, boots-on-the-ground uh, approach to uh, conducting an election. And uh, if, I mean, some listeners to this podcast may may recall that I talked about how I, I worked on a congressional campaign that year, uh, did some phone calls. And uh, I was using, I was using software that was provided by the party or consultant to the party, obviously. <laughs> that was an auto dialer. Um, thing that ran off of a laptop and I had a headset on and, and, uh, it, it was calling a lot of, you know, this is like get out the vote calls, um, in the last couple of days of the election. So at that point you should be just calling people that have already been pre-qualified as, as reliable democratic voters. And you're just encouraging them to go out and vote if they haven't done so already. And, uh, I was getting a lot of people who weren't voting for the democratic ticket. A lot of people. I was getting a lot of hangups. I was getting a lot of people who weren't accepting robocalls, obviously, but I was also the people that I did connect with. A lot of them were not democratic voters. And I think that's what happened all across the country, particularly in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, the States that uh, Biden won this year, but lost in 2016. And because of the COVID crisis, uh, they, <laughs> whether they intended to have a robust ground game this year before uh, the COVID thing started, before the pandemic really took hold, I don't know. But my guess is they didn't have any plans to do that. My guess is they had the same consultants that Hillary had back in 2016 and that as a consultant-driven campaign their plan was to use robocalls and just tweak the algorithm a bit so that you reach out to the right voters and that your 
you're micro-targeting people and you know who's going to vote and you don't, you don't really need to knock on their doors. But I mean, even <laughs> when it came down to it because of the pandemic, they were able to return to that model without really having to explain it, right? They were just, their, their position was, well, you know, we, we can't go around spreading COVID door to door. Um, so we're going to stick with the phone calls and with the modeling and with the robocalls. And in Florida, that was an abject failure. In Florida, as I mentioned in previous episodes, and as has been reported pretty much uh, everywhere you can get your political news, the Trump campaign was going door to door and had armies of people out there, you know, putting up signs and, and working on get out the vote and pre-qualifying voters and, and talking to people and getting them excited. They had legions of people, you know, marching around um, South Florida, getting people out to vote, probably telling them all kinds of things about how, you know, Biden's a socialist and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to, he's going to give uh, free reign to the communists in Cuba and the communists in Venezuela and all that stuff. God only knows what they were telling people, but they were out there, they were connecting with voters and the Biden campaign was not. And the Democrats were not in Florida. Now the Democrats were around Minneapolis because they had Ilhan Omar doing it. They were around um, Detroit because they had Rashida Tlaib doing it. They were probably around, not that, not that you need to get that much get out the vote in New York State, but I'm sure you know um, AOC's people were out and Jamal Bowman's people were out and Mondaire Jones's people were out. I'm sure they were beating the bushes for, but crucially in these swing states, you had people working on this. I'm sure you had people working on it in Philadelphia as well. And you certainly had people working on it in the Atlanta area in Georgia, particularly. Getting out the vote and connecting with voters directly. That's where it worked. It worked better that way. And there were people working on this in Arizona. So um, whereas the pundits will ascribe Joe Biden's win to, I don't know, the ghost of John McCain... Really, what was happening in Arizona was a certain amount of that retail politicking. Uh, there were Bernie people there beating the bushes, getting people out to vote. Was that decisive? I don't know. At this point, I don't. we don't even know if, if uh, Biden has truly won Arizona. He's ahead, but it was a factor. Just like uh, Ilhan Omar's people were a factor and maybe a decisive one in Minnesota, just like in Michigan particularly, and I think it's probably more true of Michigan, just because of Detroit, Rashida Tlaib putting that much energy in. And you have to you have to be mindful of the fact that Rashida Tlaib is a community organizer from uh, of longstanding. I mean, long before she was a congressional candidate, she was very well known in the community, and she and she was very influential, and she's worked hard. I mean, she was one of the hardest working activists um, ever to make it to Congress, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, she played a very important role in clinching Michigan for Joe Biden 
and therefore in making it possible for Joe Biden to be president-elect today. If he had lost Michigan, it would have been much harder. Might have done it anyway, but if he lost Michigan, it would have been a lot more uphill. So I guess what I'm saying is that as you listen to the celebrations um, on MSNBC and other sort of uh, liberal media, mass media, and you know their characterizations of the race and what was, um, you know, who was responsible for it and why it went the way it went. Just bear in mind there are a lot of people that played an important role in this. Some of them get acknowledged, like Stacey Abrams. I've heard acknowledged more than once on MSNBC. Um, but I haven't heard anybody mention Rashida Tlaib. I haven't heard anyone mention Ilan Omar, and they won't touch it with a barge pole. Trust me. They are, <laughs> you know, those those people are just total non-entities. Um, for the most part, I'd say, uh, on MSNBC, but it's certainly on, like, you know, has Morning Joe ever talked to Rashida Tlaib? Have they even acknowledged her existence other than in a negative sense? When they were tut-tutting her for saying, you know, we're going to impeach his ass back in 2017 or 2016. I don't know. Um, Or 20, I guess that was 2018. Forgive me. Um, Talking about when uh, Rashida was originally uh, elected to, to Congress, which would have been 2018. And she said something about impeaching Donald's ass. And, uh, or impeaching the fucker, (laughs) I forget how she put it. And, uh, there was a lot of tut-tutting over that. In 2018, there was a lot of, um, in an early 2019, uh, there was a lot of tut-tutting, um, directed at Ilan Omar, uh, because of some of her, um, statements regarding Israel. Um, and, and the same thing with Rashida Tlaib, uh, and, in fact, the Democratic Party um, and the Democratic Congressional Caucus under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi um, took every opportunity to sort of stomp on Ilhan and on Rashida and on the other members of this squad uh, because they, for some reason, <laughs> for a whole range of reasons, most likely, but uh, they just seem dedicated to stomping out the most visible, probably the best examples of Democratic candidates that um, are on the scene today. They've got true rock stars in their caucus, and all they can do is denigrate them. So uh, I I just wanted to emphasize the fact that uh, uh, members of the squad were an important component in the Biden victory. Uh, Don't let anybody tell you different. I'll have more to say about this maybe next week, but uh, let's let the dust settle a little bit and, you know, hey, celebrate, right? Trump is going. He's going. Going, going, gone. Unfortunately, in New York 22, I think we may be getting Claudia Tenney again. This is not good news, but we'll see. Uh, The vote is still out. And uh, absentee ballots, there's quite a few of them. They haven't been counted yet. Brindisi would have to win like over 70% of them in order to overtake Claudia at this point. There was 
there's quite a gap between the two candidates. So it's, it doesn't look good. It looks like we're going to have Claudia Tenney again, uh, my old high school classmate, um, as our congressional representative. And she's going to be embarrassing us again, I'm sure. It's going to be great. But uh, there we go. Uh, again, uh, just as a closing note, Anthony was part of the Problem Solvers Caucus. So he was making a lot of his um, reaching across the aisle and trying to find bipartisan solutions to things and um, touted his uh, his legislation that was, you know, passed and, and uh, signed by Donald Trump. Um, actually had a shot of Donald Trump in one of his campaign ads. So this is the centrist argument, right? Electability. Isn't that what, you know, Anthony was was reaching for here? Was electability? Um, you know, I'm going to be part of the muddle in the middle and uh, I'm going to make it look like I've, I'm willing to work with Trump and with the Republicans and I'm just a reasonable, you know, practical guy. And uh, there you have it. And I had my ass handed to me by Claudia Tenney, who is a crackpot. So what does that tell you? I don't know. We'll see. You know, maybe they'll still pull it out. There's a, there's a hair of a chance, but it seems really unlikely at this point. So we'll see what happens. Stuck with Claudia again. Sounds like a country song. Anyway, that's all I got for this week. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Again, I say this uh, every week. Uh, I do mean it. Uh, go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave a one minute voicemail. There's a link there. Uh, I have included it in uh, episode uh, show notes. So maybe I'll include it this week as well. Um, you can also reach me on Twitter at strange sound pod. Just tweet at me or send me a, a, a private message and uh, be glad to hear from you. Um, if you leave me a voicemail, I will play it on on the show if it's something I can play. Um, no guarantees, but um, more than happy to turn this into a conversation. You can also find me on Facebook if you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and click on the Facebook link on the show homepage. Um, we also have a YouTube channel, but as I've said many times, that's really just kind of a rebroadcast and I'm a few episodes behind, so don't quote me on that. Be glad to hear from you. Um, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next week. God willing, have a good week, and take good care. <laughs>